Hello and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. While a good review and rating won't increase our chances of being found or being a featured podcast on a podcatcher like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it will potentially help increase the odds of someone who does find the show for the first time thinking that clicking play will be a good time investment for them. And it's something that you can even do while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, we'll be talking baseball, specifically the baseball movies of the 1980s. I had a much different opening for this episode, but the Friday before I was set to record and release it, the owners and players finally came to an agreement to get back to playing, so all that work is gone, and I'm happy that the timing with this episode worked out. Now, movies about baseball weren't new to the decade. We had the Babe Ruth story and Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the 1940s, Damn Yankees and Fear Strikes Out in the 1950s, and three of the best movies about baseball came out in the 1970s. 1973's Bang the Drum Slowly, the movie Robert De Niro made just before he starred as the younger Vito Corleone in The Godfather Part Two, 1976's The Bad News Bears, and the bingo-long traveling all-stars and motor kings, also from 1976. And like I did in our episode about Blue Thunder and War Games from last year, I am once again going to recommend you seek out Bingo Long, which is just a wonderful film with Billy D. Williams, James Earl Jones, Stan Shaw, Ted Ross, Mabel King, Ken Foray, and my favorite acting performance from the late great Richard Pryor. It's fun, it's funny, it's a bit serious at times, and it's just a movie that needs to be rediscovered by everyone. There were biopics about baseball players. Some like 1920's Head and Home or 1950's The Jackie Robinson Story featured the subjects of the movie playing themselves. Head and Home featured Babe Ruth, if you're asking. Others, like 1942's The Pride of the Yankees or 1953's The Winning Team, featured Hollywood stars playing real-life ballplayers. The Winning Team, in case you missed it, starred Ronald Reagan as Hall of Fame pitcher Grover Cleveland Alexander. But... After nearly four dozen baseball-themed movies made between 1898's The Ball Game and 1958's Damn Yankees, there would be only one baseball movie made over the course of the next 15 years. A little piece of fluff from 1962 called Safe at Home, which featured Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, playing themselves in a comedy made right after Maris had his record-breaking 61 home run season. But thanks to the success of The Bad News Bears and its sequels, 1977's The Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, and 1978's The Bad News Bears Go to Japan, baseball was back on the big screen. And on the small screen, too. Five of the 11 baseball movies made and released during the 1970s were made for TV movies. And in the 1980s, that trend would continue. Now, for this episode, we'll be glossing over most of the made-for-TV baseball movies, unless we get to talk about John Ritter, like we will with the first baseball movie of the decade. The Comeback Kid was an ABC TV movie that was made during one of Ritter's breaks from filming his hit ABC TV sitcom Three's Company. I don't want to say it was a more dramatic role for Ritter than viewers were used to, either on Three's Company or the movie Hero at Large. 
the superhero romantic comedy featuring Ritter and Ann Archer, which had been a minor success when it had been released in the theaters two months before this movie aired in early April of 1980. The film was a romantic comedy sports film where Ritter plays a lifelong minor leaguer who quits the game and becomes a coach for a group of underprivileged kids. His character finds love with Susan Day, six years out from having played Laurie Partridge on The Partridge Family, and six years away from finding a new level of success on L.A. Law. But then one of the kids on the team gets hit by a car and dies, which isn't really that funny. But it does bring the coach and his remaining players closer together. Gen Xers like myself will recognize a number of the people in the movie. Doug McKeon, who would go directly from making this into shooting on Golden Pond. James Gregory, the curmudgeonly Inspector Luger on Barney Miller. Jeremy Licht from the Hogan family. Michael Lembeck, who would play Julie's husband Max on One Day at a Time. Kim Fields from The Facts of Life. And you wouldn't know it at the time, but this would feature Patrick Swayze in one of his biggest roles to date. It's exactly the treacly pabulum one would expect from a television network trying to shoot a cheap, socially conscious quickie with one of their biggest stars while he had a small hole in his schedule. But if you loved John Ritter, and seriously, who didn't love John Ritter? It's worth a watch. 1981 would see two baseball movies. One, Only the Ball Was White, was a short documentary made by the Chicago PBS station WTTW about the players of the Negro League who for many years were denied the ability to play in the major leagues. Narrated by Paul Winfield, the documentary featured interviews with several of the Negro players' greatest players, including Ray Campanella, Buck Leonard, Don Newcomb, Ted Page, and Satchel Page. And speaking of Satchel Page, he would be the subject of 1981's other baseball movie, the ABC TV movie Don't Look Back, featuring Louis Gossett Jr. as the future Hall of Fame pitcher, Clifton Davis and Ernie Barnes as his 1932 Homestead Gray teammates, Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson, Blazing Saddles star Cleavon Little as a fellow player simply named Rabbit, and Ozzie Davis as an old-time star of the Negro Leagues who's been reduced to being a rooming house dishwasher in his post-playing life. It's a bit heavy-handed, and its cast is far better than the movie they're given to perform in. But if you know nothing about Sashel Page before it, at least you know who he was after watching it. 1982 was bereft of any baseball movies, but 1983 would have two mostly forgettable entries, one each from movie theaters and from television. The feature film was called Blue Skies Again from Warner Brothers, and it was the kind of trash that could ruin a young star's career. Harry Hamlin stars as the owner of a minor league baseball team in Denver, who is convinced to give a female softball player a chance to try out for the team because the owner has the hots for the softball player's personal manager. Again, if you're of a certain age, you'll recognize a number of the stars of the film, including Mimi Rogers, who would be making her film debut here, but would be better known in a few years as the first Mrs. Tom Cruise, Kenneth McMillan, a veteran character actor in such movies as Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, and Dana Eklar from the 1974 Best Picture winner The Sting. And you wouldn't know it at the time, but this would also be the biggest role to date for a young actor named Andy Garcia. But for Robin Bartow, who plays the softball player looking to become the first professional female baseball player, 
she would never be seen in anything ever again. The film would open in seven theaters in Miami, near where it was shot in Fort Lauderdale, and on ten screens in Denver, where the fictional Devils team was based, on April 29, 1983, but it would be gone from all 17 screens after two weeks and less than $60,000 in tickets sold. Warners would give it a second chance with a 10-screen release in New York City on July 29th, but the movie would get pummeled by the local press and gross barely $10,000 in three days from those 15 screens. At one theater, the 34th Street East, its $900 weekend gross was one-tenth what the Twilight Zone movie had made in its sixth week at the theater the previous weekend. Warners would quickly pull the film and get their next release, Risky Business, a few extra screens. The other 1983 baseball movie, the TV movie Tiger Town, is mostly notable today as being the very first movie made for the Disney Channel, featuring Roy Scheider as an aging ball player who is having a bad season, and Kramer vs. Kramer star Justin Henry as the player's biggest fan who may or may not be connected to the player's resurgence just after the boy's father dies. It's not a great movie, but kids should enjoy it, and you might enjoy it too. Disney had so much success with the film that it would air on their flagship ABC Sunday Night Movie series a few months later, and release it into Detroit area theaters the following summer, which coincidentally ended up being the best year in the Tigers' storied franchise history to date. Now, there was only one baseball movie in all of 1984, but darn it if it wasn't one of the greatest movies about baseball ever made. The Natural Barry Levinson's follow-up to his 1982 film debut, Diner, was a movie that should never have worked as well as it did. The novel from which it was based on had been published in 1952, and scores of producers had spent 30 years trying to make it. Levinson was best known as being a comedy writer at the time, having helped to write two of Mel Brooks's better movies of the 1970s, Silent Movie and High Anxiety, or as the writer of comedic dramas like Norman Jewison's 1979 courthouse dramedy and Justice for All. The star of the movie, 48-year-old Robert Redford, would be playing both a 19-year-old and a 35-year-old version of his character, Roy Hobbs. And its memorable score would be created by Randy Newman, a singer and songwriter at the time best known for his satirical song, Short People, who had only written two other movie scores before, one of which was partially based on adaptations of century-old piano songs. But what did make the movie work so beautifully was the camera work of cinematographer Caleb Deschanel. The natural lighting, the scene of Iris standing up in the stands, her white hat and dress illuminated by the sun hitting her just so from outside the stadium. Roy Hobbs jogging the bases in the near dark of the stadium after hitting the home run that exploded one of the light towers on the roof with sparks falling to the ground behind him the darkness of the judge's office with wisps of light peeking through from behind the blinds. That Deschanel could be the glue that keeps the movie together was not a surprise to anyone who had seen his previous work on Hal Ashby's Being There, Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff, or especially Carol Ballard's The Black Stallion. And it would be Deschanel's work on the first baseball movie of 1985 that would be one of the few things interesting about that movie. 
because The Slugger's Wife should have been a better movie thanks to its pedigree. Its director, Hal Ashby, had made six of the best movies of the 1970s back-to-back. Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, Shampoo, Bound for Glory, Coming Home, and Being There. Between those six movies, there were 23 Academy Award nominations, including two Best Picture nominations, and six wins. But by 1985, he was on a losing streak. Two expensive projects, 1981's Secondhand Hearts and 1982's Looking to Get Out, would be virtually dumped by their studios. And his 1983 Rolling Stone concert movie, Let's Spend the Night Together, was an out-of-character misstep. This film's writer, Neil Simon, was one of the most famous playwrights and screenwriters to have ever worked. For most of the 1960s and 1970s, Simon would write a new play for Broadway, which would open to great acclaim in ticket sales, then adapt the show into a screenplay, which would get made into a movie that would open to great acclaim in ticket sales, and writing and releasing a new play while the movie version of the previous play was being filmed. From The Odd Couple in 1968 to Chapter 2 in 1979, practically every movie Simon wrote was a critical success, a box office success, and an award favorite. The Odd Couple, Plaza Suite, The Sunshine Boys, California Suite, Chapter 2. Occasionally, this cycle would get interrupted when Simon wrote an original screenplay, which would also open to critical box office and award success. Murder by Death, The Goodbye Girl, The Cheap Detective. The formula worked so well that there was a pattern for years. Ray Stark would produce, Neil Simon would write the screenplay, and either Herbert Ross or Robert Moore would direct. Ross would direct The Sunshine Boys in 1975, then Moore would direct Murder by Death in 1976. Ross would direct The Goodbye Girl in 1977, then Moore would direct The Cheap Detective in 1978. Ross would direct The California Suite in 1979, then Moore would direct Chapter 2 in 1979. Ross would direct two more Neil Simon movies in the 1980s, but as the 1970s turned in the 1980s, the scripts weren't as good and the movies weren't as good. By 1985, the stars signing up for a Neil Simon movie weren't as big as they had been a decade before. Gone were the days of actors like Alan Alda and Michael Caine, Peter Falk and Jane Fonda, Alec Guinness and Madeline Kahn, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, David Niven and Richard Pryor, Peter Sellers or Maggie Smith dropping everything to be in a Neil Simon movie. But then, The Slugger's Wife wasn't a typical Neil Simon story. It would tell the story not about neurotic New Yorkers or cynical entertainment types, but a a young baseball player for the Atlanta Braves, who falls in love with a singer, and whose professional fortunes rise and fall, depending on where he is in his relationship with his new bride. Michael O'Keefe, the young star of Caddyshack, who had scored a Best Supporting Actor nomination in 1981 for his work as Robert Duvall's son in The Great Santini, signed on to play the ball player, and Rebecca De Mornay, hot off her sizzling star-making role opposite Tom Cruise in Risky Business, would play the singer. Then there's Randy Quaid as one of O'Keefe's teammates and director Martin Ritt as the manager of the team. To call the slugger's wife a bomb would be an understatement. It would open on March 29th against the Care Bears movie, 
desperately seeking Susan, King David, The Last Dragon, Police Academy 2, and a re-release of Return of the Jedi. On 898 screens, The Slugger's Wife would gross $1.32 million, which would put it dead last for new major openers, and 15th on the list of the top movies nationwide. For comparisons, Desperately Seeking Susan with Rosanna Arquette and Madonna opened on about one quarter of the screens and would gross $1.53 million. And Amadeus, which would be in its 23rd week of release, would gross $2 million from 546 screens. But also, to be fair, it had just been named the best picture of the year by the Academy the previous Monday. The Slugger's Wife also has the distinction of being one of the few movies to have a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes after 37 years. That's how truly awful this movie is. Less awful than The Slugger's Wife, but still pretty bad, is the other baseball movie of 1985, Brewster's Millions. The seventh film, based on the 1902 novel of the same name, Richard Pryor stars as a minor league baseball player who stands to inherit $300 million from a great uncle he never met if he can spend $30 million in 30 days without having any assets remaining at the end of the month. It's hard to imagine any comedy movie starring Richard Pryor and John Candy being as completely unfunny as Brewster's Millions. But as great as they were as comedic actors, Pryor and Candy made a lot of bad choices when it came to the movies they decided to make. For every silver streak he made, Pryor did three movies like Holy Moses or The Toy or Critical Condition. For every Stripes or Uncle Buck he made, Candy made a Speed Zone or Armed and Dangerous. And maybe Walter Hill, the director of such films as The Warriors and The Long Riders, wasn't the best choice to direct a flat-out comedy, even if he was responsible for 48 hours. The only reason anyone should be watching this movie is if they made a vow to themselves to see every Richard Pryor movie, or every John Candy movie, or every Walter Hill movie. 1986 only saw one baseball movie, an ABC TV biopic about Pete Gray, the first one-armed man to ever play Major League Baseball. Keith Carradine played Gray, while Mayor Winningham plays his wife. There would be two movies about baseball in 1987, but neither of them were worth much of a mention. Long Gone was an HBO movie about an independent minor league baseball team in Florida that goes from last place to first during the summer of 1957. It's interesting in that it features a number of future stars in early film roles, including William L. Peterson, Virginia Madsen, Dermot Mulroney, and Joel Murray. But it's also worth mentioning because it features one of the best casting ideas of all time, putting together character actor Henry Gibson and Teller of Penn & Teller fame as scheming father and son owners of the baseball team. Once you see them together, you'll wonder why they didn't become regular castmates in movies and on television. And yes, Teller speaks. Quite a bit. The second was more a no-nukes movie than a baseball movie. 
Amazing Grace and Chuck is one of British filmmaker Mike Newell's earlier efforts and one that maybe could have been better in the hands of an American filmmaker. In the film, a young boy from Montana named Chuck decides to make a stand about the insanity of the potential mass destruction of the world by nuclear missiles when he refuses to play for his Little League team until the world is rid of the weapons of mass destruction. A player for the Boston Celtics named Amazing Grace Smith, played by then-Denver Nuggets star Alex English, hears about the young boy's protest and refuses to play basketball until there are no more nuclear weapons. The basketball star moves to Montana and buys a barn near the boy's house where he and other pro athletes who have joined the protest can live while they continue their protests. William L. Peterson plays the boy's father, a military jet pilot. Jamie Lee Curtis plays the agent of the pro basketball player. And Gregory Peck shows up at the end as the President of the United States to explain to the young boy, the pro athletes, and the audience why we'd need the nukes. The summer of 1988 brought two of the best movies ever about baseball. But before we get to those, there was another baseball movie in the early summer of 1988. Trading Hearts starred Raul Julia and Beverly D'Angelo as a down-on-his-luck baseball player and a down-on-her-luck lounge singer who are set up by her precocious preteen daughter, played by indie rock goddess Jenny Lewis, in her first film role. Some sources say the film opened in some theaters on May 27, 1988, some sources say May 29th. I can't find any theatrical playdates for the film or exactly when it might have come out on video. But I do remember the film, and it certainly was not worthy of good actors like Raul Julia or Beverly D'Angelo or Jenny Lewis. I talked about Bull Durham in one of our episodes about its distributor, Orion Pictures, and about Eight Men Out both in that same Orion Pictures episode and more recently in our second episode about its writer and director, John Sayles, so I won't get too much into the details that I've already covered. But I will tell you this much. Depending on my mood on any given day, Bull Durham is either my favorite movie of all time, my second favorite movie of all time, or my fourth favorite movie of all time. I've seen it so many times, and I never get tired of it. It's got that feeling about it, that intimacy about the inner workings of it all, that only someone who played in the minor leagues in that era could accurately capture. It's not a flashy movie. It's not overloaded with a bunch of technical marvels. It's a simple story, told simply with a group of actors who are firing on all cylinders, which can also be said for Eight Men Out. Eight Men Out is a great movie, too, and in many ways it's a more incredible film because of how Sales was able to make a late 1910s period movie on a budget lower than the more modern film like Bull Durham. But I don't love Eight Men Out as much. It's not as fun, and it's not meant to be fun, which is fine. But sitting here in my office in early March of 2022, I'm floored when I realize that in just two years, we will be as far away from the release of Bull Durham and Eight Men Out as the release of those two movies were from The Pride of the Yankees. The Pride of the Yankees was ancient in 1988. Bull Durham is not ancient, not even close. 
It's just one of those weird little things that you don't think about when you're 20, but you constantly think of when you're 54. But there was actually yet another baseball-related movie released in the summer of 1988, just one week before Eight Men Out. Stealing Home is a great metaphor for a dramatic movie about a failed baseball player who learns that his childhood sweetheart has committed suicide and has charged him with the responsibility of discharging her ashes as she believed he would be the only one who would properly know what to do with them. The film has one hell of a cast. Mark Harmon, who never achieved the stardom he was destined to have, stars as a baseball player and Jodie Foster as his long-lost love. Then there's Harold Ramis in a rare dramatic role, Jonathan Silberman as a younger Harold Ramis, Blair Brown, Richard Jenkins, John Shea, Helen Hunt, and and Beth Broderick. But sadly, it's yet another movie where the script and direction are no match for the stellar lineup of talent in front of the camera. In the years since its release, it's allegedly become a cult classic, but I don't think I've ever heard or seen anyone talk about the movie since the late summer of 1988. Mark Harmon claimed in 2006 that people talked to him all the time about the film, which I guess is, or was at one time, possible. I tried to watch it again for research into this episode, but it's not a good film, and it would be mostly forgotten within a couple weeks of its release, thanks to the other Jodie Foster movie from 1988, her Academy Award-winning performance in The Accused, which was released just six weeks later. And for some, The Naked Gun qualifies as a baseball movie, thanks to its third-act setting, but it's not really a baseball movie, but I will mention it here because it's a fun and good movie. As we come to the close of the decade, 1989, there'd be two more exceptional movies about baseball, and one not-so-good one that's mostly been forgotten. The first baseball movie of 1989 was David S. Ward's magical comedy, Major League. After the owner of the Cleveland Indians dies, his one-time Vegas showgirl wife makes a series of moves to put together the worst damn team in the sport so she can take advantage of a clause in the team's contract that would allow her to move the team to Miami if the attendance for the entire season fell below 800,000 people. As someone whose family is from Cleveland, who spent summers in the mid-1970s in suburban Cleveland listening to Indians games with his grandpa on the radio every night, and who returns to Cleveland with some regularity to visit family and go to Indians games, I can understand where Mrs. Phelps comes from. My dad, who was born and raised in Cleveland, has often been quoted as saying the best part about being from Cleveland is being far from Cleveland. I can't 100% agree with him, but I also had the luxury of not growing up in Cleveland and only being there for short bursts of time. Mrs. Phelps brings in a ragtag team of misfits, losers, and has-beens who predictably start the season off bad, and things just go worse from there until the team starts to gel together. When the manager of the team discovers Mrs. Phelps' plan, He devises a strategy to motivate the team to become champions. I love Major League as a movie. It hits all the right spots in terms of being a vulgar sports comedy, but it also hits a number of unexpected sweet spots of tenderness and caring. It would, for the most part, introduce us to Wesley Snipes and Rene Russo and Dennis Haysbert, 
it would give Tom Berenger his best role since Platoon and give Bob Euchre his best acting role ever. But one of the things that I cherish most about the movie has nothing to do with the movie whatsoever. In April 1989, when the movie was being released, I was a manager in training in Monterey, California for United Artists Cinemas. We ran a number of theaters in the area, including one in Carmel, called the Golden Bow Cinema. The Golden Bow is where Major League had been booked to play in the area, and theaters ran their new movies after closing the night before they opened to make sure the print was built up correctly. And since my theater, a single-screen theater, was not opening a new film that week, I was invited to come watch the movie at the theater. The manager, knowing that I was a movie nerd and a movie theater nerd, gave me a small tour of the small theater until we stopped at a seat in the center in one row, about two-thirds of the way back. See that seat, he said, pointing to a seat? Yes. This is Clint Eastwood's favorite movie theater in the area, and that's his favorite place to sit when he comes to see a movie here. Awesome. Yeah, and he'll probably be sitting in that seat later tonight. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you, you can sit there if you want. So that's how I watched Major League for the first time, in Clint Eastwood's favorite seat at his favorite movie theater. Opening the first Friday after the start of the 1989 baseball season, Major League would be a big hit, taking the top spot on the box office charts the first two weeks of its release and grossing nearly $50 million by the time it left theaters near the end of the season in September. One thing I learned during researching the movie for this episode was that the filmmakers had shot two different storylines concerning Mrs. Phelps and her ways. The second storyline actually has her as some kind of proto-moneyball wonderkind, having scouted all of the players herself except for Willie Mays Hayes, knowing the players would have lifted each other up with the right kind of a motivation because her late husband had left the team nearly broke and she couldn't have afforded the previous year's players. I've watched the second storyline sequences, and I'm not sure the filmmakers made the right choice by making her a grade-A witch. However, I am certain that the film would not have been as big a success as it eventually was if that was the route they had gone. The second baseball movie of 1989 was released only two weeks after Major League, while that film was still the second most popular movie in the country. Field of Dreams was a fairly straightforward adaptation of W.P. Kinsella's 1982 novel, Shoeless Joe, which itself was an expansion of Kinsella's 1980 short story, Shoeless Joe Comes to Iowa. In the novel, a farmer in Iowa who lives with his wife and their five-year-old daughter starts to hear voices while working in his cornfields, telling him to build a baseball diamond in the middle of his cornfield so his hero can have a shot at redemption. The other farmers in Ray's small farming town think he's gone crazy, including his brother-in-law. But his wife supports her husband's choices, including going to Boston to find a famous reclusive writer and bring him back to Iowa. And along the way, Ray and the writer meet up with a former baseball player who only got one chance to play in the major leagues before becoming a doctor. And eventually everything comes together when spirits of the past start to play on the baseball diamond that was built in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa. We all know the story, we've all seen the movie, except the movie does some creative changes from the book in its adaptation. The movie loses Ray's identical twin brother and his hippie girlfriend 
as well as the man who Ray and his wife bought the farm from, who was locally known as the oldest living former player for the Chicago Cubs. And most importantly, the filmmakers, afraid of a lawsuit by the famous reclusive writer J.D. Salinger, would change the identity of who Ray sought out in Boston during his trip, which would give James Earl Jones one of his most beloved roles. Field of Dreams would open in 22 theaters nationwide on April 21st, and it would gross more than $530,000. It's 24000 per screen average, easily the best in the nation. It would enter the top 10 the following week when it expanded to 110 theaters and grossed $1.577 million. It would expand to 633 theaters in week 3 and to 1,028 theaters in week 4 until it reached its widest point of release at 1,100 theaters in week 7. And even though it would end up grossing more than $64 million and eventually be nominated for Best Picture of the Year, Field of Dreams would never be the number one movie in the nation at any time in its release. The closest it would come was in week four, when it came in second with $5.77 million in ticket sales to the latest Richard Pryor Gene Wilder comedy, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. And I know it's not cool to admit to liking Kevin Costner, But let's face facts here for a moment. Between The Untouchables, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, and Tin Cup, it was easy to like Costner. Sure, he made a lot of crappy movies in between, and some fairly good ones, too. I've never been a big fan of Dances with Wolves, but I can still recognize it's a well-made film. And I honestly couldn't tell you, without looking up his resume, what the last new film I saw him in was... Then I looked it up, and it turns out it was Hidden Figures, a great movie he was very good in, but I had completely forgotten that he was in it. The third and final baseball movie of 1989, and thus the final baseball movie of the decade, was a lower-budgeted murder-mystery crime thriller from the company that brought us Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Night Game would star Roy Scheider as a former minor league baseball player named Mike Seaver who settled in Galveston, Texas after his playing days were done, becoming a homicide detective. When several young women are found dead around the beaches of Galveston, it's up to Seaver to figure out who the killer is. Eventually, Seaver, who's still a big fan of baseball, is able to find a connection to the murders. All the girls were murdered on evenings where a former Galveston player, Silvio Barreto, wins a night game for the Houston Astros, at the Astrodome. Peter Masterston, the director of The Trip Bountiful, directs here as well, and the film also features two of the best movie jerks of all time, Paul Gleason, best known for The Breakfast Club, and Lane Smith from My Cousin Vinny. The film would open on 175 screens nationwide, including 82 theaters across the New York City metropolitan area, on September 15th, grossing $228,000 and coming in 27th place that weekend. Even Field of Dreams in its 22nd week of release would gross more. The distributor, Transworld Entertainment, would stop reporting grosses after that first weekend, and the film would lose all but six of those 82 New York metro area theaters after just seven days. Baseball would continue to explode onto movie screens in the 1990s, 
There were 18 movies about baseball or baseball-related in all of the 1980s. There would be 18 baseball movies in the 1990s just by the end of 1995, and that's not even including the Ken Burns nine-episode, 18-and-a-half-hour PBS documentary about the history of the game that aired in 1994. And there'd be even more movies about baseball in the 2000s and the 2010s. And filmmakers in South Korea and Japan would start to make movies about baseball as well. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in two weeks when episode 74, the 3D movie craze of the early 1980s, is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website at filmjerk.com for extra materials about the movies we covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.